listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. Uh, you are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week 12th of February to the 16th of February. It's been a big one. Uh, Samantha Lane came in, the lovely Samantha Lane came in to speak about her new book, Raw, the incredible stories behind the AFLW, and we all got a bit emotional. Yes. Well, Jeff didn't. Uh, <laughs> for Wednesdays, I dared Sarah to call her electricity company and try to get a better deal and something else. And <laughs> also, we talked about tramping and the benefits of forest bathing. <laughs> it was not a person. <laughs> uh, we spoke to historian Jenny Hocking about the potential role of the Queen in the dismissal of the Whitlam government in 1975. And then Dr. Jen talked about the overview effect. What happened when astronauts saw the Earth as a little tiny green dot from millions of miles away. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff, Geraldine and Sarah. The new edition of Griffith Review is out. Among many other things, it contains a fascinating essay about the letters exchanged between the Governor-General and the Crown just before the dismissal of the Whitlam government. Its author is the historian Jenny Hocking. She's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me, Jeff. The dismissal of the Whitlam government in 1975 is probably the greatest constitutional crisis in Australian history, the nearest thing this country's ever had to a coup. So perhaps you can give us some background for those who aren't um, au au fait with what happened back then of, of what the dismissal was about. Well, the dismissal was basically the removal of an elected government from office. It's the only time that this has ever been done in Australia. Um, And the Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, was dismissed by the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, despite the fact that Whitlam had uh, just won an election, his second election in 1974, barely 18 months earlier. Um, There'd been an issue over the passing of supply in the Senate. It hadn't been rejected. It had just hadn't been voted on. Uh, So supply was blocked uh, in the Senate, that is the money bills that a government uses to, to run its everyday business. Whitlam had decided to call a half-Senate election, which was due at any time, and on the day that he was to call that, he was uh, to go to a meeting at Government House with the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, and without any warning, uh, the Governor-General peremptorily dismissed him from office. So it was a, an enormously uh, controversial episode. People are still arguing over it today and new material is coming out every day and I think that's the pressing issue here is that uh, the research continues to unfold new material. I think we've had a a false history depicted about it for the last 40 odd years and we're still to get the full story of what really happened at that time. Okay, so what do we know to date about the involvement of the Queen and her advisers in Sir John Kerr's actions? Well, to me, this is really the last of the great areas that we still uh, are unravelling. And what I found um, when I did uh, the biography of Gough Whitlam over the last decade or so, which was really an enormous undertaking but an absolutely fascinating one, um, was that uh, in the National Archives of Australia there are some remarkable papers, which are Sir John Kerr's papers held by the National Archives. So the Governor-General kept an enormous amount of material which we can now access. Um, They've been open since 2005. And in those papers I found one of the most important uh, pieces, I think, that has added to the history of the dismissal, and that is a record of Sir John Kerr's secret negotiations with 
the High Court judge, Sir Anthony Mason, it was utterly unknown at the time. Mason had had secret meetings with Kerr, had advised him, had indeed drafted the first draft of the letter of dismissal for Gough Whitlam, all of it, of course, in secret and behind the back of the Prime Minister. These are really unsettling constitutional and political issues. But there's another group of papers in Sir John Kerr's papers which we can't access and which we now know are letters that Kerr wrote to the Queen, to the palace, to her private secretary, to Prince Charles in the weeks leading up to the dismissal. They've been denied to us. I've put in freedom of information requests. Um, I've, of course, requested to access them. And uh, the only way, really, to, to attempt to find them is to start a federal court action, which I began 18 months ago, and we, that is still before the courts at the moment. Are you allowed to say what you think might be in those letters? Yes, I can. And the reason is, Sarah, that there's another file in Kerr's papers. It's like a mosaic putting together a sort of a jigsaw of what's there. And after you've spent an unhealthy amount of time in Kerr's papers, as I have, um, you can start to unfortunately read his mind. And you know, it is it is unsettling to see what a distressed person Kerr became. I think the dismissal had several victims, only one of whom was Gough Whitlam. It also created, I think, a terrible victim in Sir John Kerr himself, uh, but also in Malcolm Fraser, who I think spent the next 40 years trying to rewrite his own history with some degree of success. But going back to these letters, Kerr did quote from these letters, uh, and there are extracts from letters in his papers. It took me a long time to match them with other material to ascertain that they were, in fact, extracts from palace letters. So I have seen extracts of about seven of the letters. My understanding is there's up to 50 or 60 letters that Kerr was almost obsessively writing to the palace during this time, sometimes apparently three or four times a day. So really a disturbing pattern here. But from the extracts we've seen... It's clear that there is nothing in those papers that you would describe as personal and yet the papers themselves, the letters themselves, have been described as personal and not official Commonwealth records, which is why we can't access them. However, in these extracts, it's clear that he's documenting on a daily basis his conversations with Gough Whitlam, his conversations with the Leader of the Opposition, Malcolm Fraser, and he's setting out for the Queen what becomes, I would say, a justification for moving towards... Dismissal. So our argument in the court is that these are clearly Commonwealth records. They're official Australian records that we ought to have access to. They ought not be classified as personal records and we should have access to them. So the lawyers, um, and I want to say here that, that we've got a wonderful pro bono legal team, which is led by the QC, Anthony Whitlam, um, who is, of course, Gough oh, Whitlam's oh, eldest son. Some relation. Yeah. <laughs> but look, it's been a, an extraordinary um, series of events that has led to this case. And I really thank the legal team for their extraordinary work on a pro bono basis. Um, Tom Brennan is the is the um, barrister working with Anthony Whitlam on this case, and they're advised by Courts Chambers Westgate in in Sydney. So, without that team, of course, the case could not have gone ahead. But it is a terrible issue that that within our Archives Act we cannot appeal a decision to simply call records personal and therefore remove them from the Archives mm. um, Act, which otherwise would come under the the provisions of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Well, the obvious question then, do you think it's likely or possible that the Queen knew about the dismissal before it happened and in some senses gave the go-ahead for an elected government to be dismissed? Well, 
I do. And the reason I say that is, uh, and I argue this in a small book I had out over the last couple of years, which has just been updated, called The Dismissal Dossier, Everything You Were Never Meant to Know About <laughs> November 11, 1975. <laughs> the Palace Connection is the latest version. Uh, but in that, I make very clear that we already know from Kerr's records that he had a discussion with the Queen's private secretary weeks before the dismissal in which he indicated to him that he was considering dismissing the Whitlam government. This is four weeks before it actually happened and that he was concerned that Gough might in turn try and remove him, the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr. And so he discussed with the palace this is a clear possibility. But worse than that, he had from the palace, from Sir Martin Charters, the Queen's private secretary, a, a, a confirmation that if this happened and if Whitlam did try and remove the Governor-General from office, the palace would, in their words, try to delay things. To in, oh, wow. in other words, to enable the dismissal to go ahead and Sir John Kerr to remain in office. Now, from that communication, which Kerr cites in his records, and if that is in the, re- in the letters, and he cites a letter of, I think, the 7th of... Uh, October 1975. If that letter is among Kerr's papers, which Kerr certainly cites that it is, then the palace is already involved. It has already worked uh, with Kerr to ascertain their own action should this take place. And I think that is an appalling and disgraceful um, intervention in the relationship uh, between the Governor-General and the Australian Prime Minister. And it is uh, an appalling indication of, of clear um, imperial, quasi-imperial concern of the British um, in relation to what was happening in Australia at that time. So I do believe that, that the Queen was already at least aware of that possibility and had gone further than that and worked on a possible plan to retain Kerr in office should, should Whitlam try to replace him, having, having had wind of this. And what are the implications of all this. I mean, republicanism in Australia seems to be at something of a low ebb. The the referendum on the Republic, which famously led by our now Prime Minister, was defeated. And most of the time when people talk about Australia becoming a republic, they talk about it in terms of symbolism and, you know, the head of state or whatever. But if we're talking about the Queen having the powers to dismiss an elected government, couldn't we make an argument then that the real argument for republicanism is about democracy? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, the situation in 1975 where a government was removed from office and that government retained a majority at all times in the House of Representatives and, in fact, the new government of Malcolm Fraser uh, was defeated on the floor of the House of Representatives on the 11th of November 1975 in the afternoon. It's often forgotten in history that the House continued to meet and voted down the Fraser government, but nevertheless he remained in office. That possibility of dismissal only existed because the Governor-General cited what were called reserve powers and they are residual powers of the monarch in Australia exercised by the Governor-General as he determined it. So clearly if we want a circumstance in which democracy is protected in Australia, in which our electoral decision as represented through the House of Representatives and our chosen government remains in office, we have to be a republic. I think this does point very clearly to the need for a republic in Australia and I think actually the republic is coming back on the agenda. I like the way that Bill Shorten has proposed putting a single question and he has committed to putting a single question on the Republic to the Australian people as a sort of plebiscite in his first term in office. And that would simply be to to answer the question, 
do you want Australia to be a republic? It's not to get into argument about form or structure, etc., but it's simply to find out, do most Australians want to be a republic? And undoubtedly, all of the polls are showing that most Australians do want to be a republic. And I think this is inevitable. I think it's a change that we have to have because what you see in this wonderful edition of Griffith Review number 59, Commonwealth Now, is that every single one of these uh, articles in this journal, and they're, they're really fascinating pieces and I do recommend it to people, is that despite the fact that countries have either moved to apparently complete independence or still having a quasi-dominion status or, as Australia is, a constitutional monarchy, there are some really significant pockets of residual British role in their, in their uh, polities, including in Australia... Um, that mean that we still have an incomplete shift towards independence. And until we are a fully-fledged Australian republic with an Australian head of state, and that's the critical thing here, mm. we do not currently have an Australian head of state, and until that takes place, uh, we will not have full independence. I just want to make one more point about the letters, the so-called palace letters, and that is that the reason we can't access them is because they're called personal. But they're also embargoed on the instructions of the Queen. Now, this is extraordinary for us as a so-called independent constitutional monarchy, is that they are held in our archives. We as Australian people fund for their upkeep and maintenance, and yet they're kept from us at the instructions of the Queen. Now, no mature and autonomous country can go with that. Mm. Off with a head. <laughs> new edition of Griffith Review is out. As we said, the essay is entitled Relics of Colonialism. It's by our guest, Jenny Hocking. Thanks so much for coming in. Three Triple R. It is time for Wednesday. As uh, they, we've, we've dared each other to do things. Actually, we just dared Sarah to do something. Now, last week, uh, I was dared to uh, Jeff's favourite thing of all time. (laughs) I was dared to ask someone at the dog park uh, to breed with my dogs, for their dogs to breed with my dogs. I did it, nailed it. Uh, And then I then, at first, I dared Sarah to make a work of art and then try to sell it on Facebook. Now... It was too hard, apparently, so we changed it up a bit. And felt then, like it was unfairly time-consuming because you guys just had to walk up uh, to someone like to do... And then is that it what on, it was? Yeah, it was just the, the level time, of, Yeah, that's uh, one, one of the reasons I didn't want to do that. I thought it was more about you but, well, putting both. your creative on the line. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm sure there would have been one friend who said, yeah, that's great. <laughs> great, great 50 art. bucks. Yeah. Uh, I'd still like to see someone do that one day. It'd be good. And anyway, so I came back with the new new dare, and the new dare was to um, call your electricity company, ask for a better deal, yes, and also ask them for some advice on what's a good Valentine's Day present. <laughs> <laughs> like at first, I said, ask them to be your Valentine, but I went, that's maybe I'll get arrested. Yeah, yeah. So that might be a bit the, creepy. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So I went with the latter. Anyway, how did you go? Well, actually, this was uh, this went much better than I anticipated. At first, I thought I wasn't going to have time because I was very busy yesterday. When I got that text, oh, no, I was like, I, was about, like oh, I, can't. You, I don't know. I oh, know. I know. That's what I thought. I was like, I have to do this because everyone else has done the thing. And Jeff talked to three people for his Wednesday. <laughs> so I had to meet. I had to meet you guys at the top. So I rang the electricity company and a lovely woman answered whose name I've now forgotten. Let's call her Shirley. Mm-hmm. And Shirley uh, was in a great mood and I just didn't really know. I've never rung an electricity company and asked for a better deal. 
possible. So I just said, hey, Shirley, I'm looking at my new bills. I was wondering if you could do a better deal for me. And she oh. said, just let me check your account, miss. And then went through some details. And well, was, did you get the vibe she was in like a overseas call centre? No, no, no. Well, I mean, she had a very Australian accent. So, uh, and I'm calling her Shirley because, uh, yeah, yeah, anyway. Yeah. And so she said... Uh, yeah, no worries. Let me have a look for you. And she said, oh, you've been actually been a long-term customer. Uh, you, you're currently on an old rate for your pay-on-time bill, you know, pay-on-time mm-hmm. rate, and uh, we can offer you 15% pay-on-time. What? I know. So I actually got a deal. Oh, you should have heard me. I was so stunned. I didn't know how to reply. And I was like, what? <laughs> and also, I think it's a bit, a bit of a weird thing where they say you're on the old rate. I think this is what they do when you ring up and say I'm going to leave as a customer. Yeah, because you feel like, well, if you're entitled to new rate, why, why did you just do it? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm getting, I know, this is your bucket I knew you'd get a bit, better deal. That's, did you? Yeah, yeah. So they couldn't change my rate, but they could change the fact that when you get a bill, you get a thing that says if you pay on time, you get a discount. At the moment, my discount's only 3 or 5% and they're giving me 15% of a pay on time discount now. And you pay on time because you're on in time. control of your finances. Mm. <sighs> Definitely. This show's giving you things, isn't it? It's right. proving your life. <laughs> so while she's doing this, she had to kind of call up a, I thought, oh, I'll just leave it here and I'll make up Valentine's. And then I thought, no, I can do it. And she said, oh, you know, I've got to go and do some bits and pieces. I have to bring up this script I'm going to read to you. And she said, is there anything else I can help you with while you're here? And I said. <laughs> Deep breath. <laughs> oh, and I was like, oh. I tried to keep it really jovial. And I said, yeah. oh, you don't happen to have a few Valentine's ideas, do you? And she was like, oh, oh. Oh, mate. Oh, no. Look, to tell you the truth, I don't believe in it. I don't believe in it. She goes, never been given a Valentine, never pa- given, never oh, been given Shirley. one, never given one. I'm 40 and single. And then I felt terrible. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh that took a dark turn. <laughs> oh, no. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. She goes, nah, it's all right. Now, why don't you get them some roses? And then I replied, well, maybe. And she goes, nah, roses are too expensive. Stuff that. She, then she goes, Shirley. what about... What about, man, Shirley took this super seriously. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And Shirley said, what about you take them to gold class, go to the cinemas, oh, yes. live it up in gold class. And I thought, yeah, that's not bad. Then she asked me for some details about my partner, which I gave to her. And I said, oh, he doesn't usually care about Valentine's. So, but he just wants a Valentine's this year, which is obviously untrue. It's a definite lie. And then she said, she talked a little bit more about being single. And then she said, why don't you... No, then she said, why don't you stuff it? Stuff today. It's too much pressure. Just wait for the weekend, go to White Night, go and get some crappy food from a van and hang out in the city. It's White Night this weekend. Well, that's I don't know. It's White Night this weekend. It's coming up soon. Oh. She seemed to think it was this weekend. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, sure, that, that's a good idea for yes. Shirley. And then Shirley said, oh, here's the script, and then read me my script about the electricity bill and then hung up. Oh, I thought you were going to offer that you get 10% off electricity prices to give to it. <laughs> to, to give, give to it, yeah. <laughs> Would you like to upgrade your plan? But isn't that bizarre? I did not expect her to... No. This is what Wednesday is proving that people are more unexpected than you think. I suppose it was probably like if you've got like a fairly boring job answering the phone and someone's engages you the question, it's probably the highlight of a day. I was oh, also... Apart from the heartbreaking <laughs> bit about being single, being single and 40. <laughs> I was wondering though that perhaps she was trying to distract me from selling me something else, because then she read out really fast this thing oh, that I'd agreed to. And I was, I was like, oh, yeah, no worries. So I'm now worried I've locked myself in for <laughs> six years or something. No, you, you haven't. It's haven't fine. I? No. All right. It's that, totally fine. Well no, done. No, that was a good one. That, you yeah. did well. Thank you. I was, I'm very happy with Shirley. I can't believe her. She was so into it. It's like her mission in I'm life to get me a Valentine's Day. I'm going to get 15% off mine. Yeah. You should call all your, all your um, bill people. 
and try and get a better deal. I'm going to do that today. Mm. No, I did everyone. not know you could do that. Yeah. Uh-huh. There you go. Uh, so next Wednesday oh. is for you, Jeff. Mm. Awesome. Oh, I haven't worked it out yet. Oh, Let me have a oh. <laughs> uh, It might involve something whilst you're at the chiropractor. Are you going to see your chiro- your all your osteo again? Well, or your physio? Pretty much better. I mean, she said I should go back again. but go I, feel back. Like I think you should go back again because I think I'm going to get you to ask <laughs> a question while you're getting some physio done. Have a certain conversation. <laughs> awesome. Okay, great. Three, triple, Weird science here on breakfast. How are you going, Dr. Jen? We had to dance for the camera. We had to dance for the camera. Now we're all I a bit didn't know silly. About that. I, I said it. We, oh, talk, we talked about headphones on. Oh, we talk, I was not talk, listening to you at all. We were talking about it for 30 seconds beforehand. Yeah. I said you have to dance properly. Properly. Because oh. we, always, oh. we always dance to the song, but I just wanted to make sure that Jeff danced. <laughs> oh, I just danced. Oh, I just danced. Anyway. The pressure you are put under. None, none, of, none of this was in the contract that we signed. <laughs> What's My happening with goodness. you, Dr. Jen? So, I have something exciting. Do you know what happened exactly 28 years ago today, otherwise known as Valentine's Day 1990 in the science world? No. A very special picture was taken. Any ideas? A broken heart. Space picture. <laughs> yes. Yeah, space space picture. picture. Have you guys heard of the pale blue dot picture? No. no. Later made famous by Carl Sagan, who wrote some amazing stuff, which we'll come to in a second. But basically, the Voyager 1 spacecraft, which is currently the furthest human-made object from Earth, it's a bloody long way away. Really? At the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, really. Is it ever coming back? Probably not, no. no. (laughs) But um, at that time, so in 1990, Voyager 1 was just out past Neptune. And Carl Sagan, the very famous Carl Sagan, um, requested that they turn the cameras around and take a photo looking back at where Voyager 1 had come from. And he'd asked to do, the story goes that he'd asked to do that earlier, but the people were concerned that the camera's lens might be burnt up by the sun, so they'd said no. But at this point, when uh, Voyager 1 was so far away, so it was 6.4 billion kilometres from Earth, they snapped a photo looking back. And in this photo, the Earth is just this tiny, 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 tiny speck in this ray of sunlight. And it got christened as the pale blue dot photograph. And later, Carl, I have to read this to you. I don't normally read stuff, but listen to this. Carl Sagan wrote, that's here. That's home. That's us. Everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Wow. Right, that's wow. um, that's pretty fun. It's so poetic hey? and also terrifying. Yeah, existentially. Well, if you want to hear more, there's so this is from a book that Carl Sagan wrote, and there's just a couple of beautiful videos. If you go to Espresso Science, my blog, I've got links, and there's just little video clips of all this beautiful footage of of looking back to Earth from various spacecraft, with him narrating that part of the book. So do yourselves a favour oh. today, if you just want to kind of blow your mind briefly, listen. But this this 
um, photo completely changed our perspective on everything because all of a sudden everything that we've ever known was happening on this tiny, tiny, <gasps> tiny speck. Wow. Does that make you feel good? Does that make you feel bad? Well, that's what I thought we'd talk about because this experience that only about 550 people on the planet have ever had of looking at Earth from a distance, so oh, being outside our atmosphere and looking back and seeing Earth are just, you know, this beautiful green and blue ball kind of um, floating in in a space of nothingness, that experience turns out to be massively life-changing. And it's been christened, it was christened by a philosopher as the overview effect back in 1987. And it turns out that if you analyse what astronauts have to say about that experience, they all have very common, completely mind-blowing epiphanies about (gasps) how their life changed when they got to see that image. And so researchers have been analysing what they said to try and understand what it means, partly because, you know, in future, if um, spaceflight is going to go on, as people have suggested, people are going to be spending months after months after months after months in space. And if there's something already positive that happens to people in space, they want to understand it so they can kind of harness it to try and keep people mentally healthy, you know, in space. But the other thing is that if there's something, if there's a way we can replicate that on Earth without having to send people out into space, it's going to be really good for us because essentially what the astronauts say is they have this um, incredible approach appreciation of beauty. They find it very beautiful. Secondly, they um, experience this completely unexpected and overwhelming emotion. So astronauts have said, oh, I'd seen heaps of pictures. I knew what it looked like. I didn't think it'd be anything. Then so, well, actually, I burst into tears, you know, as soon as I saw it. But the third thing that unifies all of these experiences is they feel this profound connectedness to Earth. So they all come back talking about unity and rapture and connectedness and basically say, oh my gosh, we only have one planet. We've got to stop you know, doing what we're doing to it and this connectedness with, with all other humanity. So if we could make people on Earth feel that, it might be now really you, good. You said that these people had seen these images before and lots of people have obviously seen those yep. those photos, but is there something different about the experience of actually being there as opposed to just looking at it? It seems like it. It seems like actually seeing it with your own eyes is much more powerful than just seeing another image of it. Gosh. Wouldn't it be awesome to see? Let's go to space now. Yeah, let's. (laughs) One of my favourite things that I've been reading about is all of these astronauts who've come out and said they think the single most useful thing you could do to improve the state of Earth is insist that world leaders go out into orbit and look back at Earth so they have some perspective on what it is that they're, you know, making decisions about. So I had this fantasy of, you know, let's send Trump and a few other people out into space and say, mate... You know, that, that's what you're making decisions about. Look after it. Is there any idea about what the brain is doing when it's looking at something like this? Because it seems so beyond what biologically we were ever meant to see. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like our brains weren't made to be in space and look back at Earth, I, I may assume. It was funny because I found a quote from somebody way before humans had managed any form of space flight. I can't remember who it was now, but whoever it was basically said... Um, the first time we ever get a photo looking back at Earth from space, it's going to change everything. Yeah, wow. And, and like now we have it, you yeah. know, people, um, you know, people predicted that that's what would happen. So these researchers have basically said, well, it would be really good if we could encourage people to feel a greater sense of unity with nature and with each other. How can we replicate it? And it turns out that the closest... So, so there are some people who argue that it's essential that, um, you know, that space tourism goes ahead. So lots of people 
people can go out to space, but, you know, the reality is that's never going to be more than a few really wealthy Rich people. people. Mm. Yeah. And so the next step is to say, well, how about virtual reality? How about if we can have people immersed in that in that sense via virtual reality? But then other people have said more pragmatically, well, let's just find experiences on Earth that are as close to that as possible. And it turns out this idea of awe is is the same kind of thing. So awe is basically whenever you are confronted by something that's kind of beyond your understanding. And research has shown that if you can induce a feeling of awe in somebody, and one of the um, indicators that you're experiencing awe is that you get goosebumps, which is ah. pretty cool. So if you're experiencing awe, then you can do all these tests with people. It turns out if you've induced this sense of, of feeling awe, people suddenly become so much nicer. They become really generous. They make much more ethical decisions, they're much more likely to be patient, they're more likely to help strangers, all of these things that you um, that you would like to think about. So people will start to value experiences more than possessions. All of these lovely characteristics of humans, if you can get someone to just experience a sense of awe, they become all those nice things. Do, do any of, did any of the astronauts express any kind of negative um, emotions from this? Because I, I would have thought the other way you could interpret this is gosh, all of these things that seem so important to um, me are just this tiny little doom and yeah. gloom. A bit yeah, of an I, existential crisis yeah. about existence. Look, I read dozens and dozens and dozens of quotes from astronauts because I, I just wanted to quote them all to you because every single one was really beautiful. And now, obviously, they'd been cherry-picked, no yeah. question, but no, I didn't read anything that was negative. So certainly people have a sense of um, less entitlement and less self-importance, mm. but I didn't read any examples where that turned into, what's the point? None of it matters anyway. Mm. It always turned into this sense of we're all in it together. We better cooperate and band together and try and make the best of you know the situation we find ourselves in. Do you, do you think you can get a similar experience just looking up at the stars? I mean, you, Jared, are you going to? Was it one of you was going to the? <laughs> one of you did something <laughs> once. About the um, what am I trying the to say? The planetarium. Yeah, yeah there's actually a Valentine's night planetarium thing you can go to tonight. I think it's sold out. But uh, what was the question? I went to the. I did go to the planetarium. <laughs> did you get any sense of that? Like oh, we are so tiny in those. But I do. I, I spent a lot of time looking at the stars because when I was a mm. kid, we used mum used to let us sit on the roof at the farm and like with a blanket and watch the stars, and yep. I loved it. And I feel like I, I I swing between being so overwhelmed by the fact that nothing matters and yep. it's kind of mind boggling, and also just being totally amazed that we're in this we're kind of in this place. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I'm experiencing what the astronauts are experiencing, but I think that's a I think that'd be a human a common human thing, wouldn't it, yeah. when you lie and stare at the stars? Well, research has found that, that awe is not. So, you know, the word awesome has just become so mm. hijacked, you know, you've got yeah. to forget about the use of that word. But research suggests when they follow people around and get them to, you know, annotate what they're doing all the time, record what they're doing all the time, that most people experience awe every couple of days. is actually not that rare. And so the idea is that if in your life you feel like you don't experience it very often, find a way, whether it's nature, whether it's looking at pictures, you know, whatever it is, find a way to kind of get beyond your own day-to-day and it's a really good way to feel better about oh, I the world. I didn't even know the word awesome. It makes a lot of sense. Well, both awful and awesome awe. come really? from awe. Yeah. Ah, that's amazing. But we've just totally taken over awesome to mean anything that's vaguely okay, whether yeah. it, was meant to be, <laughs> it was meant to be something truly inspiring. Yeah, wow. So yeah. maybe that can be our challenge to our listeners. Start using the word awesome properly. Yeah, <laughs> and also go and stare at the stars yeah. or something to Get yourself on a spaceship. 
know that. <laughs> With your spare 20 mil. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Jen. I'll post out the link to your blog as always, and we'll see you again next week. Awesome. Three triple R. Attuned to Triple R, this show is Breakfasters with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Samantha Lane is an award-winning journalist specialising in AFL, Olympics and cycling. She's also the author of a new book entitled Raw, the stories behind AFLW. She's joining us on Breakfasters now. Welcome to Triple R, or I should say welcome back to Triple R. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. You were just saying off air, this is where you started. Yeah, Tracy Hutchison invited me many years ago when I think I was still in university. We played a community cup together. She clearly didn't rate my footy school but that was fine. She knew that I loved it and so she invited me to a show that she used to do The Word and on a Tuesday I'd hoon up in, I think at that stage I was driving a Datsun 120Y. Ooh, <laughs> it was light classic. blue. It was pretty hot. <laughs> and I'd sort of hoon to Truffle R, do a maybe 10 or whatever 15-minute segment with Trace and, um, yeah, this is where I first started talking publicly. Do you know what? It was AFL that got me my job here at Triple R, my love for AFL. Wow. Was yeah. It? Oh, yeah, of course it was. Yeah, because I did the down low. Did the down low. Which is a Sunday, a Sunday afternoon show where uh, I went, we talked about footy. That's <laughs> cool. Well, anyway, I don't we're know anything about AFL, about but I still have a job here too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that kind of... <laughs> and this is not a yeah. footy show. <laughs> we're turning your mic off now. <laughs> it kind of brings us back to the book though because uh, there's this beautiful moment at the start of the book where you describe your own discovery of women's football, I suppose, as like a light, more, light bulb moment, so to speak, where you call your editor at the age and go, there's something going on here. Could you talk a little bit about what it was that kind of first sparked with you when you saw the magic of women's footy? Yeah, um, there's been a few revelations. I mean, first and foremost, the, the book is mostly uh, the the stories of uh, women and a man, Craig Stasevich, who were part of this AFLW but I've got to say in the opening which is 70 pages and I sort of took it as a piece of long form journalism and an investigation into the barriers the people and the institutional constructs that actually blocked AFLW uh, from birthing uh, until last year I had several revelations myself one being that you know when I turned up at the age and even in footy just studying out on afl.com.au as a young journo, everything that I did was just geared towards the elite and the elite was men and all the messages to me were if you want to be taken seriously, if you want to have respect, if you want to have cut through, if you want to have all those things that journos sort of strive for, you've got to cover the men. But one day I was invited to talk to an academy. Uh, The AFL didn't invite me to many things very often so I was like, oh, this is interesting. (laughs) Um, I went and actually the academy was the first ever gathering of young, uh, talented women footballers and I spoke to this group and I started this night it was just at uh, Prince's Park around the corner and I started by saying I'm really intimidated by you I don't play footy I don't know what you'd want to hear from me Um, but I'm all ears like what do you want to talk about and they just wanted to talk about media and how to hold themselves and all this kind of stuff and anyway we had such a good chat that uh, I couldn't help but say yes when I was invited to watch them play the next day and it was on the MCG now it was a Saturday uh, 
it was a I was working but it was a, a quiet news day it would appear because I rang my editor just totally amped by what I was seeing and I had a woman next to me Jan Cooper who uh, is the secret weapon behind AFLW and it wouldn't exist without her and she just talked me through every player she talked me through this vision that in 2020 she said the AFL would have men and women's teams and from that moment I grabbed it and I was like I'm not going to let go of this I'm going to keep bringing the AFL and saying when are there more women's games on the G what are you doing what's the funding etc etc and in the end like all credit to Gillan McLaughlin with this he brought it forward by three years and so kind of dropped a bomb on the AFL when he stood up at a at a lunch and said we're going to go early we're going to launch it in 2017 and the fact is that was actually too late but at least they've done it now and we've got a, a competition that is attracting people that actually felt disillusioned by the AFL for a whole host of reasons and they're coming back they're feeling included and and this is the AFLW effect uh, you begin the book discussing the excitement of the very first um, season in 2017. You're publishing it now in the opening rounds of the second season. How long have you been working on this book and what made you decide to do a full-length book? Yeah, um, well, I was asked, so that was <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, yeah, and and I felt so strongly about it. Um, I mean, I work for Channel 7 and I get this sort of incredible view uh, sitting on the boundary for the Saturday night broadcasts of these games. It is infectious. You know, you feel this passion. You see this groundswell of people. You see the people behind you and you think, my gosh, they're they're people I relate to, you know, mm-hmm. and they're people I want to be uh, involved in footy who who haven't been, who have felt yeah, angry, um, you know, a whole heap of stuff. So that was a personal motivation. Um, in order to do it, I actually took a redundancy from the age. Uh, so oh, in the wow. middle of last year, uh, it was June, I sort of, I mean, the snappy way of saying it is I quit my day job to, to write <laughs> wow. this book. And from that moment, I mean, I was that classic sort of character, I suppose. I, I had to deliver a chapter a week in order to make this deadline. So it Jesus. came out now. So oh I was sort of, yeah, every, I was getting up at five. Um, I mean, you guys are probably, that's probably a sleep in for you. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, really very dedicated every waking hour just to, to do it. But these uh, stories and the, the stories that are shared in here, I mean, they're so intimate. Uh, they strangely just kept me uh, very motivated. It kept me company in some ways, but it was a very um, singular existence with a laptop and a whole lot of caffeine. Oh, and <laughs> you, it is. Uh, you, I think it was worth it because I, I didn't expect this, but I read this book over the weekend and I've cried four times totally mm. unexpectedly although I cried last year at the games and I didn't think I was going to do that either can I ask what made you cry was it happy or sad it's happy it's happy and the stories are so beautiful and the stories I hadn't read I kind of maybe knew a little bit about Katie Brennan and a little bit about Daisy you know Daisy yep. but just the way that um I think it was women triumphing over what at times just seems like insurmountable odds mm. uh and I mm. loved the way they let you in so you you have all these really personal moments with these women who share more about their lives than I've heard them share before. Mm. I was particularly taken um, by the chapter on Kirby Bentley, which is one of the first stories you tell because she welcomed you 
back to country yeah. and you got to go and hang out with her family. Yeah. Are you able to talk a little bit about that for, for the listeners who might not have read the book yet? Yeah. Um, Kirby Bentley uh, is a Fremantle Dockers. Well, now she's um, she can't play because she's had three knee injuries, so she's been crueled by that. But this woman I knew a little bit about and just she struck me as a very compelling character so I was in Perth doing a Saturday night men's footy match and I thought oh, okay here's the moment and <laughs> so I contacted Kirby she met me in a cafe with her manager and I thought oh god this is going to be intense she'll probably say no but I sort of outlined this idea that I wanted to do and she looked at me she looked at her manager her manager said I think you like this idea Kerbs and she sort of nodded and then she looked at me and said I'll do this on one condition that I have to take you to country. And I was like, okay. So a month later I was back in Perth and she picked me up at the airport with her two nieces in the back of this big car and we drove uh, for four hours to Mount Barker, which was her home, and the, one of the girls vomited within like half an hour of this road trip. I was like, oh, God, this is going to be a long one. But we cleaned that up and, you know, dropped them off somewhere. But I saw more, apart from hearing her phenomenal story and there's been a murder in her family, uh, violence, uh, addiction, abuse, a whole lot of stuff, and yet this woman, and I wish we could... If anyone's, like, in the position to Google right now, Google Kirby Bentley. Um, She has this smile that just... I think I say could thaw Arctic ice. Yes. Like she, this woman is just a positive force without being, you know, too sweet. She's just a, a resilient figure. And so she took me to her auntie and uncles. Uh, she just showed me around her town and she said, this is the way you will get to tell about who I am and what my life experience is. And I think, again, I'm, I'm just being reminded here, she, she says that she lives in a a black Australian life, a white Australian life and a life where the two merge. Um, anyway, her story about how she came to footy is, is quite something. Mm. Um, she used to watch her dad uh, and, the, and the local blokes play in Mount Barker. What captured her first was a sound and it was the sound of the uh, studs of footy boots hitting the concrete as they ran yes. to the field. And so she put thumbtacks in shoes so that she oh. could make that sound <laughs> as a kid. Okay. She's just, she's amazing. Mm. I love her. That's why we cry, mate. Yeah, no. It's, <laughs> I think Jess is going to cry now. Oh, I already am. So, um, sorry, the, I guess the uh, there's many reasons to cry about this, the AFLW starting. Um, and, uh, and one of the other things that's been really great is... Um, the openness to the LGBTIQ mm-hmm. community. Yeah. Um, and there's a chapter in there where you talk about uh, the first players that have um, come out. Yeah. Um, that are in a... Then they play against each other. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So that's Penny Cooler Reid and Mia Ray Clifford mm. who are, are put in a chapter together. They're the only double chapter. <laughs> and that's why it's an odd number of 11 rather than 10. Um, they're engaged and... Yeah, I mean, I came to this story because last year when I was still working at The Age, I became aware uh, of their um, engagement and the fact that Melbourne and Collingwood were playing in round two. So, as you know, Geraldine, uh, 
the AFL men's competition has uh, no on-the-record history of mm. a gay couple, um, be it within the playing group of the AFL male fraternity or just a man who plays footy who's openly gay. And yet um, before the second round ever of AFLW, uh, Penny and Mia Ray told me their story. We ran it on the front page of The Age. Uh, they didn't do it because they wanted, you know, attention. attention. Yeah. They did it because they this is their life and they're proud and they were just so excited to be playing each other. Uh, and, in fact, beyond that, because I suppose that's, that was documented before this book, I mean, Bette Goddard, the coach of Adelaide, mm. um, when we did her interview and she's a standalone chapter, she'd never spoken about her partnership with Lydia, who she's now engaged to since the yes uh, vote got up. Um, but Beck, we were just sitting having a couscous salad or something in Adelaide <laughs> and, and I just was I was steering it towards is it sensitively and I knew that she was gay, um, but I'm never gonna force as a journo anyone to say anything, you know, that they don't want to declare. So it was a navigation process for me as a journo and I just asked her about the big figures in her life and suddenly she just puts on the table Lydia and we've been together and this is how we were together and this is how homophobic I was um, as in herself she said the the biggest homophobic force that I've ever known in my life was me Mm -hmm. and that was her as a young woman trying to conceal it Debbie Lee also in the opening um, that I write State of Origins I mean she was running women's footy in Victoria and was the Daisy Pierce of her day she's like a legendary player pre-AFLW and she says in this book for the first time publicly that she was concealing it, that she was asking other footballers, d- women, to keep their relationships to themselves. And she says it's it's her personal shame and biggest regret. And when we did that interview, we are just at the European on, you know, Spring Street or mm. something, she started crying. And wow. it's something she had to say and she wanted documented. Equally, I think uh, homophobia is covered very well by Shiloh Curtis, who speaks very bravely in the introduction, and she's been so pivotal to development of women and girls in uh, Victoria and Australia. And there's a, a really ripping quote in there where I ask her, what do you think the AFL thought of you when you were players? And she said, I, I think they thought that we were a bunch of big butch lesbians and Mm. implicit in that was and they didn't want a bar of us Mm. we were too hard we were too different and then if you combine that with a president who's saying it's hard enough for us anyway just keep your sexuality to yourself please Mm. you know and this is from a gay woman i mean you see the layer upon layer of just well, what do you call that? Inhibition, pain, um, and ultimately this this group of players was neglected and treated like the poor cousin of the AFL, the ugly stepsister. What mm. do we do with them? And hallelujah that as of this time last year, suddenly uh, this movement, this cohort of supporters, um, players and their supporters was validated, legitimised and floodlit on Princess Park um, to a lockout crowd, no less. Yeah. I was going to sneak in one little question. I know we've got about a minute <laughs> yeah. left. There's a great chapter, as you said, on former uh, Collingwood legend and Brisbane coach, yeah. Brisbane uh, women's coach, Craig Starsevich. Yeah. Yeah. And in it, it's a great insight into how, I'd say, the old school uh, AFL 
reacted to the new school AFL in mm. AFLW and he says he talks about it being important to him that it was accepted by Brisbane's men's coach, Chris mm. Fagan. Mm. Uh, you work in this industry and you have for ages and you've walked around blokes and you know what goes on behind the scenes. Do you think AFLW is genuinely being accepted by the powers that be and within the industry? And where do you see it going in the next 10 years? Yeah, I think if you'd asked me this time last year, there was a bit of cynicism, scepticism. I mean, I'll be frank and I'm not going to name names, but when I was telling people that this is what I was doing every day last year, I saw a few of the glazed eyes, the Mm. raised eyebrows. What are you doing? Is that, do you really want to do that? Is that marketable? Is that a good career move? Don't be pigeonholed. kind of attitude I was getting Uh, I would say after the success of last year the tide is well and truly turned but it's it is a fragile vulnerable growing thing the last week when it was criticized and the AFL was just I think mismanaged the whole thing in trying to Mm. um, send a memo I mean it was ridiculous it it brought out uh, the critics and it doesn't take much to get that sort of, oh, well, there's not enough scoring, all this kind of um, talk. So it is, uh, it's in its infancy. It is 37 games old. My vision, though, and I know it will happen, every AFL men's club will have a women's team before too long. I'm not saying that's going to happen in five years. Maybe it's 10. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is five, though. Um, I, yeah, I have no doubt about that. The AFL has invested... $60 million, I think, over five years. Um, they don't do that with something that uh, they don't want to work. That's a really lovely thing to hear at the end of this conversation. <laughs> um, Samantha Lane, we're such big fans of yours, so thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having me. The book is raw. The stories behind AFLW, a movement bigger than sport. I think everyone should read it. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, uh, here's some news. Uh, um, oh, have you guys heard of um, forest bathing? No. Is it a person? Like Forrest Gump? No. Uh, Great it's, name, it's, though. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Mr. Bathing. <laughs> forest bathing. <laughs> uh, forest bathing is the practice of taking a short, leisurely visit to a forest for health benefits. Ah. So basically going for, Go for a, walk uh, in the country. a hike or whatever. Yeah, bushwalking. Um, the practice originated in Japan. Uh, but I, I just bring it up because I've, have you ever done it, like gone for a walk and, and thought, geez, that felt good? Yes, all the time. Yeah. All Especially, the time. I reckon there's really something in that. Something, yeah. There's something about walking mm. in the bush, whatever, and it just makes you feel better Serene. about stuff. Yeah. I feel like all my muscles relax. Yeah. I realise that I'm constantly tense. Oh, there you go. So I did it, um, I, I mentioned uh, last week a couple of, how when I was in um, Christchurch uh, in New Zealand, uh, I went to Geraldine. Um, I've been to paradise and I've also been to me. Uh, but So Geraldine is uh, about two hours um, out of, out of, uh, out of Christchurch. And it's near, next to it is the Peel State Forest, um, which I went to because in Geraldine it's not a very big town. There's not a lot to see and do there. Is there anyone else there called Geraldine? Did you find that out? Was it named after someone called Geraldine? No, I think it came from Fitzgerald, like oh. a guy whose last name was Fitzgerald, and then yeah. oh, Fitzgeraldine. Yeah, so it's weird. Who cares? <laughs> um, but it's funny when I was there though. 
uh, I, I tried to take uh, like I took a bunch of selfies when I was there, obviously because I wanted me in under you know with the name Geraldine. Yeah. Except you can't like I you can't do the selfie like where you have the camera facing you because I didn't want the letters to be backwards. Oh, I did not even think about that. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so, That's very smart. Yeah. So there's lots of photos of me with just the top of my head or the oh. the word Geraldine not in it. Anyway, it looks. It's funny. This is, but the point is, I went to Geraldine. There wasn't much to do there, so I went to the Peel State Forest to do a bit of hiking. Although they call it tramping in New Zealand. Really? Yeah, I'm is a that big fan of the word tramping? Tramping is good. I've never heard the yeah, term tramping. Have I. Why? Well, it's just their name for bushwalking. I feel like tramping more accurately describes the yes. action as well. Yeah. You know, I don't hike. I feel like no. healthy, fit people hike, but I probably tramp. Yeah. A little Tramping bit of foot dragging. Feel, sounds a bit more to me like you do if you were sort of drunk or lost, though. Like yeah. well, crashing that's aimlessly around. Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> kind of, Fair enough. Yeah. I like to tramp. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I did some tramping, sober tramping. Um, and I... They had, you know, they had a bunch of different walks that you could that you could do, and one was like you. There was like there's a big tree walk, so you walk. It's about fifteen minutes, and you walk in, and there's a huge tree, and take a photo in front of it. Great, but it was you know, and it's stunning. Like New Zealand have, I don't think they have any idea how beautiful it is mm, at so times. Nice. Yeah, they're so like oh yeah whatever, and then it's like oh my god, look at this, it's amazing, and also no snakes. Yes. We talked about it before. So when you're doing yeah. your tramping, you can trample, trample on everything. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, there was somewhere else that I was tramping, like at a lookout, and there was a rustling in, like it scared the bejesus out of me because I was like, "What? What is it?" And then I realised, I found out later it would have been a hedgehog. They've got hedgehogs. Do in. they? Yeah. Imagine if it was a hobbit. <laughs> that would have been an unexpected turn of events. <laughs> Anyway, I did the big tree walk. I was feeling pretty good about myself. And, you know, it was only a 15-minute walk. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm feeling it. And I drive up the road to go to another walk. And there was a walk. You see it by yourself? Yeah, yeah. You were worried worried you might hurt yourself or break a leg or... No, there's people there. It's like walking through up in the Dandenongs oh, or whatever, right, yeah. you know. So, so I um, yeah drove a bit further up, and there was like a waterfall walk. And I was stand- I had to get. I'd borrowed this car from um, fans of mine, <laughs> fans <laughs> people that had come to see my show and lent me their car. And like I was looking at the time, going, I've got to get back by five. And I was like, Do I have time to actually do this walk? And there was a, a grandmother and her grandson at the start of this walk, and trying to work out how long it would take and stuff and she's like it's really beautiful and she goes oh and I went I'll I'll leg it I'll leg it I'll be fine I'll just get in there and white muck about now the walk to the big tree was pretty tame like it was pretty Mm. flat a little bit of a hill I got about (laughs) like a hundred meters into this walk to this waterfall and then it just went straight up and I was like oh (laughs) I'm not tramping enough there (laughs) I'm in struggle town (laughs) and I I reckon I was about five minutes in and then the the grandmother and the grandson caught up to me and she's like, she would be easily in her 70s and he was like 10 and so, and I kind of had stopped to take a break because I was so knackered, <laughs> I'm bright red in the face, I'm sweating and they're just like, la, 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 la. 
And I'm like, oh, I think I might have oh, mistimed this. I might have to go back. Go back. <laughs> so embarrassed. And they're like, no, 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 just keep, keep going. I'm like, all right. Oh, God. And then because um, she was like, oh, I understand, but it is – it's not too much further and it is quite beautiful. To, and I'm like, all right, I'll do it. Who cares if I'm late? I'll keep going. And then the little kid's walking along, so he's trying to chat with me and I'm, I can't <laughs> talk to him at all. Huffing and puffing like Barnaby <laughs> yeah, Joyce. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then he still goes... And then at one stage he goes, we stop at every at every um, chair there is. Like we take heaps of breaks, and I'm like, oh, I don't. I keep walking, and they still they stop, and then still catch up to me every time. I'm just like, oh. And then big eventually came around the corner, got to the waterfall, and was like, oh, this is totally worth it. And then kind of legged it back, and it was it was fine. But I just remember afterwards feeling so. Good. Like, I was just like, oh, this feels the best for the rest of the nine. I was just like, I'm cloud nine. I'm like, I'm going to do this more. Probably, you know, to get that good feeling also to improve my health. <laughs> You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.